0: Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and you're listening to the Planet Earth podcast, which today is based on the east coast of Scotland by Ocean Lab. More on what goes on in there in just a moment. Also in today's edition, we've got marine biologist Kerry Lewis, who survived freezing temperatures to return with her second audio diary from the Arctic. And how identifying proteins from a 50 million year old creature can help the storage of
1: radioactive waste and shed light on evolution. Preservation of DNA, that's just not going to go back into deep geological time. But the preservation of some of these proteins from these soft tissues does.
0: I've now come inside the hangar of Ocean Lab 1 and this is one of two buildings that makes up the University of Aberdeen's Ocean Lab facility out here in Newburgh 20 kilometers or so north of Aberdeen and I'm with Dr Alan Jamieson who's a marine biologist and he also designed many of Ocean Lab's deep sea landers now these are structures that are lowered from ships onto the ocean floor and I'm surrounded by a few of them and um, well basically they're not quite what I expected because they resemble children's metal climbing frames with scientific equipment sort of attached to them or am I being too rude about your state-of-the-art equipment here
2: I've heard a lot worse. The lander's looking a bit bare at the moment because we don't normally have them all fully assembled when they're in the hangar because when we we test the equipment, we tend to take it off the frames themselves. So what you're seeing is the empty shells of the landers that when they go on a ship will be populated by cameras and batteries and current meters and things like that.
0: And where do these get deployed around the world?
2: We deploy them all over the place. We've worked all across the Mediterranean, the North Atlantic, the South Atlantic, Norwegian fjords and more recently we're working a lot around the Pacific Rim. Using the landers is ideal because we get to see a lot of these animals alive and that's what sometimes you don't get just when you're trawling it's good to get some more behavioural aspects and physiological and ec- ecological information than in purely preserving samples.
0: We've got also behind us a, a sort of miniature, shallow pool for testing, I assume.
2: Yes, it's a five metre deep by five metre wide freshwater test tank. Myself and my colleague have just designed an acoustic current meter, which is capable of working at 11,000 metres deep. We're just testing it in the tank just now before it gets sent down to New Zealand for our next cruise uh, in the chromatic trench. Where we're starting to specialise more and more is working in very deep trenches. There's probably less than a handful of people in the world who have the capability of going beyond 6,000 metres. And we've been doing it now for five or six years and are making incredible progress using the lander systems as deep as 10,000 metres. We believe that ocean conservation is everything in between. So it's the surface to the deepest point, the entire ocean in its entirety, not just the shallow end. So somebody has to do the deep end, and that's where we are.
0: Alan Jameson, thank you very much. I'm now inside Ocean Lab 2 in a corridor just outside the wet lab. And inside, I'm going to meet Billy Hunter. He's working on an EU project called Hermione, which is looking at the human impact on deep sea ecosystems. Here we are. And in we go. Hello, Billy. It's, it's quite noisy in here, isn't it?
3: Yes, there's a chiller unit running for uh, a, another set of experiments looking at ocean acidification. And whereabouts are you working at the moment? I'm working in the northeast Atlantic in a canyon between the southwest coast of Ireland and Cornwall. It's a, it's a submarine canyon, so it starts at uh, around 1,000 metres water depth and it descends down the continental slope to around about three and a half to 4,000 metres. We've got
0: wetsuits at the back, a couple of large industrial-sized sinks, and then we have this, which is difficult to describe, but I'm going to give it a go. It's a piece of equipment that's about a metre and a half high or so with two big orange floats on either side.
3: What is it? This is called a benthic incubation chamber, affectionately known as an aerobic by us and essentially what it is I suppose is a glorified shovel connected to a glorified syringe. <laughs> the actual chamber itself is uh, sent down to the seafloor on what we call an elevator and it's then taken by the remotely operated vehicle which is a robot submersible which grips the handle on the top of it and lifts it and places it on an undisturbed area of the seafloor And then we can take measurements and and look at what's eating what in the seafloor.
0: In terms of the life that you're looking at, what type of creatures are, are you specifically interested in?
3: At the deep sea floor, I mean, there's the large exciting animals, the the fish and the large crustaceans and sea cucumbers, which are feeding on the surface and eating each other. What I'm specifically interested in, however, is the small, the tiny little worms that live in the sediment. So they live in the the mud. Essentially, they feed on all the detritus, the dead plankton and uh, poo that sinks down from the fish and other animals that live in the water column. And they form the base of the food chain at the, at the seafloor.
0: And why are you interested in these creatures in particular?
3: These creatures have a lot of important contributions to both how the global climate works, how carbon and nitrogen cycle through the environment, so they affect the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere, and they also provide food for the fish, the bigger animals that live at the seafloor.
0: So they're they're sort of almost the basis of the food chain effectively, which makes them incredibly important.
3: Yes, certainly if you removed all these animals, the whole marine food chain would be seriously affected.
0: So what sort of impact, then, is man having on these tiny creatures?
3: Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. It's one of the things that we're really trying to just start to get a handle on at the moment. What we're looking at is what these little animals eat how they interact with each other, and also um, how they affect the bacteria in the seafloor, which the bacteria also are eating a lot of the detritus that lands at the seafloor. In terms of man's impact, it could be massive. Essentially, man is affecting how the seas function by putting new material into the sea and affecting the climate. We introduce pollutants into the sea, even material that's swept off the land, farming residues and sediments, and with climate change there'll be greater amounts of that material coming into the sea because of storm events, and we just don't know how that material is then going to affect life at the seafloor.
0: Billy Hunter, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to the Planet Earth podcast from the University of Aberdeen's Ocean Lab in Newburgh. You may remember from Jurassic Park, the book or the film, that scientists managed to reconstruct dinosaurs from DNA that had been preserved for tens of millions of years. Sadly, for dinosaur fans, DNA doesn't appear to last that long. But it turns out that proteins do. And an international team of scientists has managed to produce the first ever images of the residues of skin proteins from a 50-million-year-old fossil. The technique will not only be used to piece together the evolution of ancient creatures, it could even help with the storage of radioactive waste. Richard Hollingham went to meet the leader of the research group, Roy Wigelius, at the University of Manchester.
1: So what we're looking at right now is a very, very small, probably juvenile reptile from the Green River Formation. It's about 50 million years old. It's um, let's say about 5 centimetres long. It's only part of the organism and we think this poor unfortunate little critter probably got bitten in half and that's why it's ended up in the fossil record.
4: Because if we look at it there's almost a long tail and two legs I guess almost like frog's legs but probably about half the length of of my finger embedded in this quite thin
1: sandy almost like a almost like a slate. That's right, that's right. You can see a a long central tail, and then you can see where the legs join in, where the pelvic region is, and then the organism is truncated. Mostly what you can see is the skin. And if you look at it very, very closely, you can actually see that there's some of the patterning left in the skin. It is mottled, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And that's the scale pattern. And that's why we thought this would be a tremendous specimen to look for the residue and patterning of proteins. You're actually looking for remnants of
4: of proteins, of the molecules that made up the skin.
1: Some remnants of the original chemistry. After 50 million years. That's exactly right. It's the the chemical fossil. Now, that seems like an outrageous thing to propose, doesn't it? And yet, I can just hear the traffic outside on Oxford Road rumbling by on fossil fuels. We have absolutely no problem thinking about organic molecules being preserved as long as we don't think about what species they've come from or from exactly where they've come. We just put them in our gas tanks or petrol tanks and burn them. This is a chance, using some of these very, very sophisticated techniques, to track back and find some of these very, very robust organic molecules and trace them back to their source. And indeed, we were able to do that. So what did you do?
4: Because it's, it's a very different process to the sorts of things paleontologists
1: normally get up to. And that's why I describe myself as a geochemist. I'm, I'm not a paleontologist. So forgive me if, 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 if I say anything that um, that would make a, a paleontologist recoil in horror. Usually, paleontologists look at bone, and then they look at structures. What we wanted to get to was using chemical techniques. And we had this idea of using a different part of... The electromagnetic spectrum. very, very simple thing that we did, we just used infrared light rather than visible light. Now, the infrared light gives you an idea about the presence of organic molecules, because an awful lot of the infrared spectrum will cause vibrations in the organic components. And by that, what, what that means we can do, we can identify specific parts of organic molecules. And The the specific parts of the organic molecules that are present within this fossilized lizard skin are extremely similar to the organic molecular fragments that are present in beta-keratin from existing um, lizard skin. And so we did a comparison of the distribution and types of these organic, we'll call them them functional groups. Uh, We mapped these organic functional groups and compared them from this fossilized skin to some skin taken from a present-day gecko, and the distribution patterns map very, very nicely. So what can you conclude then? What that showed us is that the protein residue derived from the original skin still has some of the character of the original proteins, and the distribution of it is controlled by the original biological structure. It's not contamination from the embedding matrix. It's not very, very unlikely to be any kind of microbial consortium. We did some other techniques that show Pretty clearly, the amount of of microbial contamination is minimal. It's to do with the original organism. And that gives us real hope that we can apply this technique in other areas. So you can identify specific molecules, components of
4: proteins, from a creature that lived 50 million years ago
1: why what's the advantage of that what are the applications of that yeah it's a compelling question there's this sort of gee whiz factor that oh my gosh you know we have this uh, tremendously old organic chemistry preserved that's fascinating in and of itself really just the fact that we can detect it and show that it maps with the original biology of the creature but that gives us hope and and a a way forward for an awful lot of other research. For example, what it means is that non-destructively, we can map this kind of material and find hot spots where there's high quantities of these degraded proteins and then sample them without having to destroy the whole organism. Then that material that we've sampled, we can do much more sophisticated proteomics type analysis and look for protein sequences. And that can give us information down to the genus level. And then we can really start to do some molecular paleontology.
4: It's so it's putting together proteins, and, and from that you can then what make linkages
1: about how these various creatures were related. That's exactly right. It can and, and it will have a big, big impact on understanding evolution because we can get down to, to these protein sequence levels. Preservation of DNA, that, that's just not going to go back into deep geological time. But the preservation of some of these proteins from these soft tissues does. And this has applications beyond
4: just understanding evolution.
1: One of the things that I'm very interested in, in fact the other side of my research has to do with radioactive waste disposal and how we can safely sequester radioactive waste. Now the safety cases for most countries have to demonstrate containment for between... 100,000, and a million years. Well, this is a 50 million year experiment between trace metal contaminants and organic compounds that tells us one way that nature has been able to sequester organic compounds and trace metals in place. That's very, very useful information for us.
0: Roy Wigelius from the University of Manchester talking to Richard Hollingham about the power of proteins. I'm back outside Ocean Lab now to introduce our final report, which also relates to an ocean, but this time at the far north of our planet. Dr Kerry Lewis recently returned from the four-week Catlin Arctic Survey, which examined the effects of climate change on the Arctic Ocean. As a marine biologist at the University of Exeter, Kerry specialises in marine creatures, and the focus of her second and final audio diary is zooplankton.
5: So, I'm up in the sampling tent, and we're about to start a 24 hour plankton trawlathon, which is going to be a bit of a mission and quite a long and very cold night, but will hopefully give us some really good data. We had our first midnight sun just the other night. So we want to look at the differences in plankton distribution under the ice now that we've gone to 24 hours daylight. A lot of the zooplankton species that I'm interested in quite often do what's called a dial vertical migration. This means that during daylight hours they tend to hang out quite deep where you don't get daylight so that the predators can't see them and then they swim to the surface under the ice when it's dark and do their feeding then. So we're quite interested in comparing the data that we got from our just beneath the ice trawls while we still had periods of darkness to now that we have 24-hour daylight. So we're going to be taking samples on the hour, every hour, for 24 hours, which means we're going to be sleeping in the sampling tent on just some Z rests. So yeah, this is going to be a bit of a mission, and I'm a bit anxious as to how I'm going to cope at 4 o'clock in the morning, but we'll see how it goes. So we're just into... Troll number seven in our 24-hour trawl-a-thon, and a seal just appeared in our hole. It's the most exciting thing ever. It um, swam around the hole a few times, and I spotted it and yelped, and then it slowly came up and put its flippers either side of the hole and just stuck its nostrils out to get some big breaths of air. We're not very near open water, so we must have swum quite a long way to get to our sampling hole and um, used us as a breathing hole, so we had to pause on our sample. It was really cool. But um, back, to, back to trawling now. Unfortunately, we still need to carry on. Okay, so it's now midnight. So we're officially halfway through our 24-hour plankton trawl And it's still pretty light, actually. Um, the sun is hiding behind the clouds, but it is still up. And, uh, yeah, we've made a nice little camp in our sampling tent. There's three of us that are going to be staying up through the night, and it's myself, Jamie and Helen. Jamie and Helen are outside on the bicycle winch. As we're lowering our plankton net down for our 12th draw. The excitement of the seal has died down a little bit though we're all hoping it's going to come and visit us in the night and in the last sample we found some bioluminescent copepods, which was pretty cool. They had this lovely blue iridescent colour when we shook them in the water and yeah we've got lots of chocolate and tea to keep us going through the night and I think it's going to be a long night. Let's see how it goes. So it's now midday and as you can probably hear the wind has picked up quite a lot since we started this sample 24 hours ago. It's now minus 27 air temperature but blowing about 18 knots which means it's about minus 45 wind chill factor and it's blowing lots of snow so it's really quite low visibility and we can just about see the camp but it's it's not so nice out here anymore. Poor old Helen is on the bike winch for not the 24th time because she's been sharing it with Jamie but they've been doing sterling work cycling the trawling net up and down for 24 hours now. How are you feeling Helen? Very happy to be coming to the end of our 24-hour period. Quite tired, a little bit cold and ready for some hot soup which is hopefully going to be ready in about half an hour. Hopefully it's given us some really interesting data but we're very tired people right now. It's about half past 11. I've just finished my last day of lab work and science for this year's Arctic survey. I'm feeling quite sad, but um it's been a fantastic three weeks. I've worked my butt off. I've got an awful lot of samples that are either frozen or fixed to take back to Exeter, which will need a couple of months I reckon of further analysis. But the data we've looked at so far looks good. I'm very happy with what we've managed to achieve out here this year. It's hard to explain why the arctic is such a beautiful magical place to be yes it's a cold barren wasteland but there's something very magical about it the light is different every day but i think a lot has to do with the contrast between its its power the pure power of nature here i mean it could kill you in a second if you weren't looking after yourself properly but it's also incredibly vulnerable it's the place that's changing most rapidly on our planet at the moment and is is incredibly fragile in terms of climate change and it's the contrast between the the power and the fragility I think that also makes it feel like a very special place to be and I'm sat on a metre and a half of sea ice and I can't help but wonder how long there'll be sea ice here in the summer whether I'll be one of the last people that gets to do this which is a really very sad thought
0: Kerry Lewis sharing her experiences on the Catlin Arctic Survey. And you also heard Helen Finlay from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. I hope you've enjoyed sharing my experience today at the University of Aberdeen's Ocean Lab. Do check out our Facebook page. There should be some photos of the Ocean Lab on it and our Twitter feed. This has been the Planet Earth podcast for the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.